Recovery Elevator, episode 78. And just saying like, whoa, when did this happen? What, what is this? And um, just saying this has got to change. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for one year, 11 months, and one day. On today's podcast, we've got Annie. She's been sober for over two years, and she didn't seek help with her drinking because she didn't know enough about it. But once she got knowledge on her side, she quit drinking. It's an amazing journey that has an amazing story. So we are going to switch things up today, and we're going to hear from Annie first. Annie, how are you? Good, good, Paul. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into this. Annie, how long have you been sober? Oh, it is probably just over two years. I actually don't, I don't track the specific dates. I started writing about it and journaling and realizing I wanted to make a change in March of 13. And I think I stopped regularly drinking around Christmas of that year. Nice. Congratulations. And before we get any further, let's hear a little bit more about yourself. Maybe tell us where you're from, what you do for a living, are you married, and what do you like to do for fun, Annie? So I'm from Aspen, Colorado, and I am married 11 years this month, and I love to ski, I love to hike, I am a big kind of outdoors person, but we did spend a few years in New York City, which is, to be honest, a lot of (laughs) drinking came from there, because there's not a lot to do besides go and meet people at the bar, that's kind of how you made friends, and I have been in marketing. So I've done, you know, worked for advertising agencies, was most recently a chief marketing officer for overseeing 28 countries. So big kind of corporate marketing related career with lots of, lots of marketing. (laughs) Absolutely. And let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. When did your elevator reach its bottom over two years ago? Talk to me more about that moment, or was it a series of events that led up to that decision to stop drinking? Yeah, I think there was both. I think that we were living in London because my company at the time was headquartered in London, so we had to go over there for three months out of every year and kind of live abroad. Uh, My husband and I are two kids. And there was two moments. One was when we were going to the London Eye. It was a Saturday with our kids. And I had just thought it was a good idea for whatever reason to bring two massive beers in my bag, kind of just sip before we went into the London Eye. And this was Saturday morning at like 11 a.m. And I'm there with my dad and my husband and my two kids. And I drop my bag and one of the beers explodes. And so it starts like spraying all over everything in my purse, all over both my children. So they reek of beer all over myself. It was, I mean, it was really like I was laughing and crying inside because it was kind of like, what the fuck has happened to me? Like, what am I doing? And what am I? And people were looking and it was something you had to make a joke out of. But then I'd say, Another trip, my family wasn't in London at this time, but I was traveling all over the world. And it was sort of like when you are, you know, you take off on the airplane, you'd drink on the airplane. I'd still be drunk when I'd land in the foreign country. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd go into the, you know, United Lounge to shower. There's always free alcohol in those lounges. It would be eight in the morning, nine in the morning. And I'd feel so shitty from the night before that I would be like, well, 
I guess, you know, it's probably fine to just, you know, have a few just to get through today. Like I just have some meetings. So then I'd have some drinks in the lounge before going to the office for an all day of meetings. And I was just pretty much existing on alcohol and coffee. I would even say I would like, yeah, I get through these trips by just alcohol and coffee. I get the carbohydrates from the alcohol. I get the caffeine from the coffee to get me through to the alcohol. And I lost a bunch of weight and I wasn't really eating. And um, I was coming home from that trip, one of those trips, and was sitting there realizing I had to go back to my family and get back into regular mommy life and just saying like, whoa, when did this happen? What, what is this? And um, just saying this has got to change. I know that feeling very well, Annie. And talk to me about your drinking habits leading up to this moment. And did you ever try to curtail your drinking and perhaps put a plan in place like Annie? No drinks in the United Lounge before noon. <laughs> the plans are probably my worst enemy because I think that, and there's, there's now I know there's great sort of research to support this, but as soon as you start to try and stop something, it's when it becomes the most tempting. And it's almost like putting yourself on a diet. So I would have all sorts of ideas. I would have not drinking till 5 p.m., no more than two glasses of wine, which was absolutely impossible because once I had two glasses of wine, I just didn't care about having more than two glasses of wine. I would have, you know, just wanting to have, you know, a sober day. And this was really my husband just being like, look, do we have to drink every day? And I just remember being like pissed. Like it was not fun. And I don't remember if I ever actually did it, to be honest, because usually if he'd be like, look, it's your turn to be the designated driver or something, I wouldn't enjoy what we were doing. I wouldn't enjoy the party. I'd be so grumpy about not being able to drink that we would go back and, and we'd get home and then I, I just would get, get drunk anyway. So, you know, I don't I don't remember like going through days not drinking, to be to be really honest with you. I, I remember finding an excuse pretty much every day, despite kind of my efforts and his efforts to kind of say, whoa, wait a second, you know, and those ended pretty quickly, because I would get so defensive and so frustrated with him that he just decided, okay, well, I just have to back off here a bit, because it wasn't, it wasn't productive for, for us as a, as a couple, I definitely was driven kind of further into defensiveness and separateness with his attempts to, to get me to kind of take a few days off or whatever. Annie, I hear some very compelling reasons to make change. We've got beer spraying all over your family and your kids <laughs> in the London Eye. You know, meetings across the world. We're here drinking in the United Room. And these plans are not working. It's clear that change needs to happen. And a little over two years ago, you made that change. I know from firsthand experience that change is not easy to make. How did you make that change? Well, so I didn't... I didn't seek help. And I think that that was interesting because I think that I just didn't know any better, to be really honest with you. I didn't have, I didn't really know. Yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I didn't know that there were resources out there that I now do. And there's amazing resources. Um, but what I did is I remember that moment in Heathrow Airport, just having a really talking to with myself and it was different than the other talking to's because the talking to's before had been really about guilt and what are you doing? What are you doing to your family? How can you be doing this? Aren't you afraid of getting cancer? Like I was really afraid of cancer. I'd read some article that drinking causes cancer and indeed it totally does. But for some reason that just had lodged in my brain. And, but all those fear tactics just made me feel guiltier and made me, it made it worse. But this one was different. It was like, okay, I am going to give you permission to write about this and journal with this and for the first time to be completely honest with yourself and not put rules on it. And I'm going to give you permission to explore this in kind of a mindful way. 
And I had this experience where I had been having really, really severe back pain for three years. And I had just read this book by Dr. John Sarno. And he kind of made this connection between your unconscious repression of emotions and pain and your conscious mind and whatever. And so I, I had this inkling that somehow there was something in there that I had this conscious desire to drink less. And then I had this I had unconscious feelings about alcohol and I just had this, this kind of like light bulb moment of there's something here that if I look into this and I explore this, I bet I can really understand why I drink when I don't want to be drinking because that was the biggest thing is like, I did not get that. I didn't understand. I think I'm a strong person. I think I'm a responsible person. I think that I'm like this, you know, like we all do like this good, decent person. And I said, well, why can't I keep these commitments? I can keep commitments to, you know, go to a meeting at five in the morning. I can keep commitments to turn in my board report, whatever, but I can't keep a commitment to like not drink more than two glasses of wine. Like what is happening? And I knew it was something else. And so it was just kind of that moment of, okay, I'm going to look into this. And that started just a ton of research, to be honest. Like I really approached it as if it was a science project and I self-experimented and I went through this massively mindful year of reaching out to different people about kind of what this conflict could be and came up with a name for it, cognitive dissonance, and really kind of discovered, okay, that's what's happening here and how can I solve it? And so, yeah, definitely not kind of a traditional path, but sort of my own little tenacity. (laughs) Listeners, there were several value bombs right there. And that year of research and that journaling actually ended up turning into a book, which we'll get to that shortly. But let me recap some notes that I just jotted down over what she just said. First off, something changed. Instead of the self-loathing, the guilt, you told yourself, okay, let's write about this. Let's stop beating ourselves up. Let's explore what's going on. And the key word right there is the rubber hits the road as soon as you can get honest with yourself. We'll get to the book in just a moment, but how did you do it? Like how, I mean, describe what it felt like in the change. You started to do all this research and you're like, wait a second. Okay, I can do that. I need to quit drinking. What was it like the first day, the first week, and the first 20, you know, 72 hours in the first year of sobriety? So the research, I didn't quit drinking when I started the research, just to be clear. So the research took probably eight or nine months. And I discovered a lot during that research. So that by the time I was ready to say this was it, I had really made peace. And so I think that my day one was, it was really interesting because there was two different things. I had this massive amount of kind of like physical, like, you know, I was shaky. I had night sweats. I had, there was a lot of physical stuff going on, but on an emotional level, I felt like free. Like I was like, oh, like this is the thing, right? And I knew that everything going on with me physically would pass. And I felt like it was like being sick for, a month. I didn't know how long it was going to take. It took about a month, but I felt like it was like being sick to save my life. And I was so willing to do that. So I'd say the first month physically was pretty shaky. I mean, I would wake up with massive night sweats. I was having some pretty, you know, some detoxing symptoms and whatnot, but emotionally, and it was emotionally intense too. I mean, there was a lot of tears, but a lot of laughing and a lot of just joy too. So it was like this very like really high in a very emotional way, but then really also like, wow, like this is, you know, this is it. Like I'm, I remember my sister-in-law and I have some people in my family actually who have gone before me and um, my brother is sober. My sister-in-law is sober. And she, I remember talking to her. I was like, so 
I mean, don't you get bored? Don't you get bored just every day? Like not being, you know, like not changing your mind state. And she's like, bored? Are you kidding me? She's like, the boring thing is drinking every day because then everything's the same and you don't even remember it. You don't even have good memories about it. And I mean, that just put things, oh, well, that changed my point of view on that. Well, wait a second. Maybe the boring thing is drinking, you know? And I mean, every single thing that I had that's that was the process really it was okay well how am i going to relax well well maybe drinking isn't relaxing and then i did a bunch of research about well is it relaxing well maybe drinking isn't fun you know and so then when i stopped i i didn't have a desire to do it anymore and i felt and that's where that freedom and that emotional kind of high came from was like wow i didn't have a desire to do it but then i will say that the first year the hardest thing about it was the social aspect like the first year every single event that i would go to was completely before I would go like, oh, what is this going to be like? New Year's Eve. What, you know, because I I quit drinking right before Christmas. So what is Christmas going to be like? What is New Year's Eve going to be like? You know, it was like, how is this going to work? And then I'd, everyone, I'd go into it, not with the idea that I was missing out, but with the idea that I was exploring it. And I was like, seeing how it would be and this excited kind of okay, but nervous. And then I'd come out the other end and be wow, well, that was really, that was really good. That was really cool. Like I was really present and I had great conversations and I remember everything. And then the next mornings, of course, you know, this are just blissful because you wake up and you don't hate yourself and you don't, your body doesn't hate you. And you are just in this space of, I can do this. All right. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Um, Annie Grace wrote, this naked mind control alcohol. And I, I told Annie before the podcast, I've got a stack of books on my table of recovery books. I've, I've been doing this for a hot minute for about two years, interviewed a lot of people. I've, let, I've read a lot of recovery books. And your book, Annie, is, is in the must recommend category without a doubt. I read it and I love the fact, and I could tell without even answering the question, I was like, I think this, I think Annie wrote this book without ever attending an AA meeting, which I think is awesome. And here's why I'm going to be clear right now, uh, recovery elevator and 12 step programs. We are completely separate have nothing to do with each other. I'm a big fan of AA. I'm about to finish the 12 steps with my sponsor, but I feel like you wrote this book without being brainwashed previously. And I use that term lightly. Because when I started the podcast, I had so many norms, just like, you know, my unconscious mind had already accepted all these principles and facts and, you know, were, were like, you know, seemed to be facts. But you wrote this book without knowing any of that stuff. And it was a completely different perspective. And can you talk to me a little bit about you know, what the feedback, what the pushback, if any, was after writing a book on how to get sober without even attending, like, you know, the world's most accepted program, Alcoholics Anonymous? Yeah, there was there was some pushback. I think that it was a lot. I put the book out in draft form. And so the research wasn't as well documented as it is now. I didn't have all the citations in the back and stuff. And so when I put it out, like tons of people downloaded, I had 10,000 downloads within the first few weeks. And some of those people were AA members. And they just really did push back because who was I, right? Who was I? I wasn't a doctor. I was working with some doctors. I was working with a neuroscientist. I was working with a psychologist at the time, but I didn't, I wasn't myself. And so who was I? And the idea that, you know, you could get sober without attending meetings, you know, I was told that that could, that could really harm people. And, and so I, I was really surprised because I hadn't, like you said, I hadn't, I hadn't gone. I did go to one meeting before I published the book because I really wanted to see what it was like. And 
I mean, I was blown away by the courage and compassion and, and love in that room. It was a women's meeting here in Denver. It was phenomenal. But there was some pushback. I think the biggest pushback was that I questioned the term alcoholic because I believe and my research has shown me that any any organism can become addicted to alcohol in the right circumstance. And yes, there may be some genetic influences, there may be some stress-based influences, but honestly, if they give a hundred rats and they force feed them alcohol, a hundred rats will become addicted to alcohol. It's not as if 10 rats will and then 90 rats will go on to drink socially and normally. And I think that in that meeting that I went to, there's literature that says, you know, alcohol is an allergy and it only manifests in a certain percentage of the population and everybody else is just like happy over here, normal drinkers. And I took issue with that in my book because I was like, wait a second. I mean, we're all built of flesh, bone, blood cells, et cetera, and alcohol is addictive. And that is the one thing that every medical professional does agree on, despite the fact that there are so many different definitions of alcoholism. And so, yeah, I took issue with that. And I think that the word alcoholic is really a solace for people. And I didn't realize that at the time. And I think that the word alcoholic, there's one just brilliant uh, study that was done that says the only time you can reduce cravings completely is to eliminate, totally eliminate the source of the craving. So if a heroin addict goes to prison, they will have fewer cravings, just full stop. And that just happens. And using the word alcoholic in a sense does that. It says, I am this, therefore I can never. And when you have that, it's almost like a barrier of protection. And it's a really powerful thing. And I think that that's once I understood that that was the use, I, I totally get that. But at the time, I didn't. And so I kind of took issue with the word alcoholic. I said, wait a second, like, alcohol is addictive. We don't have cigarette-aholics. We don't have heroin-aholics. We don't have cocaine-aholics. We have people who are addicted to alcohol. I was addicted to alcohol. And so there was definitely some fear around that. But I've since met a really good friend in AA, and she just said, look, yeah, um, I had a, a great two people. I didn't know they were in AA, and that's one of the cool things about AA, too, is that it is anonymous. But one of my dad's best friends, he came and he told me, I've been going to AA for 21 years. He set up this big meeting with me. He was going to go through and, you know, kind of he had a whole list of bullets. And then he finished the book and he got to my house and he goes, I had all this stuff to tell you until I read to the end. And now I just have to say congratulations, because I think that in the beginning, I kind of say, like, let's look at this. Let's explore all the aspects. And then by the end, I do come to this conclusion that you can't control alcohol if you put it in your body. It's not controllable. And, um, and, um, so, he and so he kind of said, like, like, at the end, he's like, like, okay, we're on, we're on, where we get to, we just get to there in different ways. And he hadn't seen that at, at sort of the beginning. I love it. Hey, Andy, I'm going to turn off the video because sometimes video kind of works with the uh, internet connection. Andy, that is something that I've also been grappling with is, number one, I'm breaking up with the word alcoholic. I did a podcast episode, I did a couple episodes ago, was just that, that it could be as simple as I don't drink. And I love the way you lay it out in a really simple fashion that it doesn't have to be extremely complicated, which I've said in many times in, in basically every podcast episode I've done, is this the most complicated disease known to mankind? And you lay it out in a way that really it doesn't have to be that difficult and complex is basically anybody can become addicted to alcohol given their environments given their genetic makeup will determine at what pace they become addicted to alcohol and that's something that i grapple with is a there's like the traditional model that about 10 percent of the population which i've said on this podcast will become addicted to alcohol and then there's b 
this other model, almost a year model, but it's uh, that everybody will become addicted to alcohol. It just depends on a, your, your, your genetic makeup and B your environment, which is how much you drink. And I, I, I kind of like yours better. I hate to say it that way, but I do. I mean, tell me more about that and, and you know, how you reach that conclusion. Yeah, well, I really reached it based on research. So it was, you know, and I, the research that I did, I, I have a master's in science and it was more about the very, it wasn't articles, you know, it wasn't Wikipedia. It was me paying for scholarly, you know, dissertations and collegiate articles that were statistically based relevant research. So that's kind of what went into the book. And so there is just evidence to support the fact that alcohol is addictive. It's not the person necessarily it is much more the substance there is equally evidence to say that with any addictive substance it is when we use it during times of stress and self-medication that it becomes most important to us and and that's what i've heard over and over and over and for me it was certainly true i think my relationship with alcohol although i was definitely a heavy drinker and i was going down the road of becoming severely addicted it was after we had our second child and i had some pretty severe postpartum depression and I started my drinking to escape. And I think at that point, something changed a little bit for me. I, I think I was addicted before, but I think it was much more on a psychological, I need this level for relaxation, for having a good time. All of a sudden, I felt like I needed it to survive. And I think that when that happens, that happens because of, of stress. And it, there's this great study, and there's something called um, the hedonic threshold. And basically, you have your, your temperature threshold. So you know, if you get a fever, it goes up, but it still goes up and down around 101 degrees or wherever your fever is. And that's to keep you healthy. You have this hedonic threshold that goes up and down. And, you know, you can, if it's operating normally, you can take a hot bath, you can go for a walk, you can read a book, and that will break through this kind of stress pleasure threshold and relieve whatever stress that you're under. When you're under times of severe stress or trauma, that entire threshold moves up to the point where all of your normal day-to-day -day activities, like reading a book or going out to a movie, aren't going to give you the same relief. They aren't going to break through that threshold. And one of the things that makes addictive drugs addictive is that they will break through that threshold mm. when nothing else will. And so what happens then in your brain is your brain learns that that is the thing that, you know, you know how toxic stress can be. Your brain learns that that is the thing that is going to provide relief. And your brain actually learns that that substance in that moment is as important to you for survival as is food, as is water. And that is why people will continue to drink even when they're puking and then they drink more because your brain has actually become rewired in that instance to believe that that substance is as important to you as anything else you need for survival. Your brain looks at alcohol as a survival tool because it has learned that that will provide relief when nothing else will because it artificially stimulates your pleasure center. And so that's probably a long, complicated explanation, but that happens in human beings. That doesn't happen in a certain percentage of human beings. Now, as you said, you know, your, your genetics obviously plays a role. Your circumstance plays a huge role and how much you're drinking of it. Because even if you're massively stressed and you have all the right genetics, if you never drink alcohol, you're not going to become addicted to it. But it is, it is something that I feel that if we continue to say that alcoholics are separate, one of the big things that kept me drinking for much longer than I should have is I did have one friend who told me she was an alcoholic, and this was probably seven, eight years ago. She said, hey, I'm going to AA. And, you know, we weren't really close friends, so we didn't talk too much about it. But I had her over, and I asked her about it because we had been drinking together for so long and at the same level. 
And I said, hey, well, what do you think? I mean, do I need to come? Like, what's your deal? And she goes, no, no, Annie, I'm, I'm different than you. My drinking is different than you. I, I, I'm an alcoholic drinker. What that means is, you know, I, and she went on to kind of list things that I couldn't quite relate to. Like she'd go to the bar after she left my house or whatever. And I was married with kids. So that's probably why I couldn't relate to it. But she'd finish the bottle of wine. If there was one, I could absolutely relate to that one. But anyway, she defined herself as different. She told me she was different and she told me she was born that way. And that was something she had picked up in her meetings. And so I, I just, I took immunity from that, you know, and I probably drank for, I, I decided, well, I'm not an alcoholic. And so I can just keep drinking. And I think that was really one of the things that's on my heart is that there are so many people who are heavy drinkers who won't define themselves as alcoholic or have been told they're not alcoholics or don't believe they fit the typical stereotypical alcoholic, you know, persona and they will continue to drink because of that, because we use it as a shield to defend our addiction. I'm not that, so I'm, I can keep going. And I think that's really dangerous in a way. Absolutely. That would be focusing on the differences instead of the similarities. And you know what your friend was saying when you had her over is kind of like the brain conditioning slash brainwashing that I'm talking about, that we just sit in the chair and whether we think we're listening or not, all these ideas... Um, that have worked for so many, and I'm not knocking the 12-step program because it has saved millions of lives, but I love the fact, and I could tell within the first chapter, it's like, wow, she has not been into an A meeting, and I will continue reading because of that reason, and I'm so glad I did. Now, Annie, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. I really like the relation you made between the two. You said something that since the 1970s, there have been studies that show your subconscious mind will make a decision one-third of a second faster than your conscious mind and another thing you say that i love is your conscious mind will consciously make a decision and then your unconscious mind just won't get the memo <laughs> can you explain a little bit more about that yeah absolutely so when i you know my big kind of moment of okay wait a second i think i think i have an explanation here was that I knew that I wanted to drink less, but I also knew that there was this completely competing agenda. So I wanted to drink less. I'd make myself all these promises. I'd say, absolutely not tomorrow. I was so certain. And then five o'clock would come and I would feel like I couldn't survive without pouring myself that glass of wine. And I didn't understand why, to be honest, because it was like there was this deep desire in me for that substance. And so when I started to realize that that desire... I did some research and it turns out that our unconscious mind is completely responsible for our desires. So we don't consciously decide who to fall in love with. That happens. Lots of unconscious conditioning, you know, different things like smell or biochemistry or history or how much they remind you of your, you know, family upbringing, whatever. So, but we don't make that conscious decision. We don't say, oh, that's a good match. So I'm going to go fall in love with that person. And our desires in general, they're actually, you want something before you realize you want it very frequently. And so we have had this huge lifetime in our culture today of unconscious conditioning, subconscious conditioning about the benefits of alcohol. And it's come, you know, in a huge part from advertising, but it's also come in a much more powerful way from the environments we've grown up in and from our parents drinking and from the fact that you can't go to a social event without seeing alcohol present. And the fact that we've actually intrinsically married pleasure and alcohol and stress relief and alcohol. And that is in every book you read, you know, the cop that gets off work, cracks a bottle of beer, 
the last baby shower I was at, there was alcohol. The last funeral I was at, there was alcohol. There isn't anything that we aren't putting alcohol with. And so unconsciously, we've made these massive connections that alcohol is vitally important for relieving stress, that it's important for having a good time, that it's important for relaxation. And we believe these things below our conscious awareness. So we believe them without even language. So it creates this huge desire to drink and a huge belief that if we don't, we will be missing out. We will be suffering. We will not have as much fun. We will not be able to relax. And then when you consciously want to drink less, like you said, the unconscious hasn't got the memo. So you're, you're met with this huge internal divide between what you consciously want to do and what your desires are telling you you want to do. And that divide, I think, is one of the most painful parts of addiction because at least for me, it made me lose trust in myself, lose faith in myself. I would tell myself I was going to do one thing, I would do something else, and then I would blame myself because I didn't understand why. And I really reached a point where I couldn't even stand to look in the mirror. And of course, at that point, what do you do? You drink more because you're trying to numb out how far you've fallen and how bad it is. And that point of self-loathing, I mean, over and over, studies have now shown that that shame and guilt and self-loathing, they just don't work. You know, we need understanding and acceptance and love. We need to be able to realize that, okay, this this is a huge factor of this is due to our circumstances, our society, what we've been told. And I think a huge part of my journey now, you know, is just continuing to protect the unconscious mind, because it's especially when you're not consciously aware of something that it comes in. So you see an advertisement on TV and you say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm just blocking that out. Well, People wouldn't pay, you know, the most expensive advertisements in the world, you know, for Guinness, for Budweiser are the two most expensive. They wouldn't be there if it didn't work. These things work and they work especially when we think they don't because then we're not putting up any defenses. But if you look at the ad and say, okay, really, you know, Miller Lite is telling me that I'm going to be more in shape and I'm going to be better at the gym if I drink that beer, really? And then you consciously think it through, that counteracts it. Whereas if you just sort of look away and let it, you know, filter through your brain, it it tells your mind something. And so you have to be really kind of on your guard to not let the garbage in and really reverse things when you see them. You know, if you see somebody with a drink, relaxing, having a great time, you have to sit there and say, okay, I have to think about this and realize that there's nothing inherent in that drink that is making that person have a good time. That person had a great time before they ever picked up a drink. They used to laugh probably even more. I mean, the average four-year-old laughs, I think, 50 times more a day than the average adult, wow. right? So it's not the alcohol. And you have to be constantly stopping those things because we are so incredibly vulnerable and it is everywhere in our society. Annie, the last four minutes of this podcast has been solid gold. We talk about why we wake up and make a promise to ourselves, And I have made it hundreds of times. I'll wake up and be like, wow, I am done with alcohol for the rest of my life. And then only to see at five o'clock or at noon, sometimes earlier, not only drinking, but completely shit faced. And that's where the self-loathing comes from. And that's basically just the unconscious mind not getting the memo. And I love it how you wrap the whole disease of addiction or whatever it is, and you make it simple, simple to the fact that this is a highly addictive drug called alcohol. That's it. And it's the only drug in the world that we have to justify to our friends when we say no. And it really shouldn't be that way. 
And Annie, before we reach the rapid fire round, I just want listeners to know where they can find the book. And you've also got another project coming in the works. If you could explain the both of those. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Paul. So the book, um, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, I self-published. Um, so it is not available in traditional bookstores yet, but hopefully someday. And um, I am working on my second book, which is really just about what we were talking about. You know, it's about my first few years and the techniques that I use to just maintain the kind of clean mind, the kind of naked mind of not, you know, keeping the garbage out, not letting the garbage in and what those techniques are and how I used them. And I'm also taking the book and I'm, I've been had a lot of requests for coaching, which I don't feel qualified to do, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not a coach, but I have taken it and put it into a video-based course that I'm going to be doing with a lot of worksheets and a lot of self-exploration and journaling and stuff. And so I hope to launch that um, in the fall at some point. I love it. And Annie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. What was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, the worst memory was not having the memories. We moved into this house um, that we're in now. I don't remember moving day and moving days are supposed to be so special. And it brought me like, I remember just crying about the fact that I couldn't even remember what color the moving truck was. I didn't remember the day and I lost that day. And that makes me incredibly sad. The worst memory was the loss of memory. That's a common answer and it's terrifying. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment when you had like a brilliant idea or a brilliant invention. Did you ever have an oh shit moment when you're like, wow, I don't think I can control my drinking. Uh, I think I had a lot of those moments and I think they were all at three in the morning when I woke up <laughs> and I couldn't remember how much I had drank the night yeah. before. <laughs> oh shit. All right. Annie, next question. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I think that it is really just continuously protecting my unconscious mind. I mean, I was at a wedding and it's like, oh, a wedding, you know, maybe maybe that's a place for alcohol and just continuously saying like, look, why, what, and being really conscious and really going into the questions instead of trying to ignore the questions. I love it. Next question, Annie, what is your favorite resource in recovery? And of course that is besides the book, this naked mind control alcohol and the podcast recovery elevator. My favorite resource is um, actually just 10 minutes of watching my breath every single day. I think that there's all sorts of scientific studies to say just closing your eyes and paying attention to your breath allows your mind to focus and it grows the prefrontal cortex, which is the area of your brain used to make good decisions and self-control. And I have noticed that in all areas of my life, especially with any craving or fear of missing out I ever feel, when I don't do that, I feel it more intensely. When I do it, I feel it significantly less intensely. And next question in regards to sobriety, Annie, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think that the best the best advice that I've ever received is just that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the, the freedom of it being irrelevant and focusing on other things. So I guess that's not really in regards to, it's more about living than it is about sobriety, I guess. And that someone said that much more succinctly than, than I did, but um, living alcohol free and just living your life and being able to completely be at peace with that instead of focusing on, kind of another sober day is, is really kind of where I found freedom. I love it. And last question, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? I would say that the most important thing is to right now in this moment, forgive yourself and realize that you've been caught in this massive addictive trap. There's probably, you know, 
you need to start from a place of saying, okay, this might not entirely be my fault. There might be a lot of influences here that are beyond my control. And the sooner that you can get to a place of saying, all right, I'm going to love myself through this. I'm going to be honest with myself through this. I'm going to take care of myself through this. And I'm going to forgive my mistakes through this. Then that, I believe, at least for me, opened the journey to becoming sober. Whereas all the all the things I thought I was doing right, you know, self-righteously beating myself up and telling myself that I should be better, I should be different, those actually kept me stuck. Acceptance is the answer. Annie, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. It's a must read. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you. I started the Recovery Elevator podcast episode 000 as a selfish tool to help me stay sober. Right around episode 20, it became obvious what the new direction would be to combat the stigma. I was staying sober and it turned out I was helping others along the way. It is clear as day for me why I'm doing the Recovery Elevator podcast to combat the stigma. What I thought would be the hardest part about combating the stigma is actually the easiest part. The hardest part about this is, well, it's you guys. It's the people on Team Recovery. And I need to proceed carefully when recording this podcast to ensure I don't say something that I will regret. And I remember the adage, pause when agitated. Well, I have paused for a period of time and now I'm recording. After 79 episodes, I'm finding that the stigma that I'm fighting looks completely different than what I thought it was going to look like. When I think of what the stigma would look like in a personified form is a non-drinker or somebody who works for a liquor company, a bar owner, my next door neighbor, the mailman. That's who I thought the stigma was that I was combating. But believe it or not, that's not it. In fact, when I do have a conversation with a normal person, the person who I thought was the stigma, the response is always completely underwhelming to the point it upsets me. I'm like, come on, don't be such a pushover. I'm hoping for them to tell me their thoughts and feelings about how drinking is a moral failing, that all we have to do is just stop drinking and make a choice because they're bringing feelings essentially to a fact fight that I know a hell of a lot more about. But the disappointing part is I never get to the point where I have to whip out those facts and say, hey, we'll think about this for a second. Their response is always this. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Nice job. We'll keep it going. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Seriously, it kind of pisses me off. So here's the hardest part about Recovery Elevator. It's you guys. And I'm in that group too, but it's team recovery. And that's what I didn't see coming. Now, I don't want to make it look like I'm finger pointing, but I think I've dropped the ball and making it clear of what I'm really trying to do. What I'm trying to do is fight the stigma. But apparently, I'm not fighting the stigma with non-drinkers. I'm fighting the stigma with drinkers, people that are already in recovery, who think that it's stupid what I'm doing. What I mean is, I'm trying to open up a recovery cafe. I've gotten a couple quotes looked into numbers. It's going to cost like fifty dollars to $70,000 to open up a small cafe. That's money I don't have. I'm going to need some resources if I'm going to get this conversation started in this big place called the world. Now, let me read you an email of a cancellation that I just got. I'm not going to say the name, and I hope this person the best. But it's hard not to let this sting. This one came from somebody who was in Cafe RE to somebody that I didn't think it was necessary to explain why we're charging $12 a month for the community. So this is it. Please cancel my subscription. I'm not getting anything out of this group. Like my sponsor said, why are you paying $5 a month? And my sponsor, unlike you, is actually helping me LOL. 
I think it would be best for you to stop abusing those who are already down and out. I hope you do realize you use your subscribers to get podcast episodes, and I think that's shady. I liked listening to your podcast, but I am so sad you made recovery and taking advantage of people your business. I won't be listening to you anymore. Ouch. I'm not saying that with sarcastic tone. Fucking ouch. You got to take things with a grain of salt and haters are going to hate. But I read this one and I wanted to shut the laptop and throw the microphone right out the fucking window. Seriously, that hurts. Now it's like a 50 to 1 ratio where we get 49 great emails, but one of them like this just crushes me. Don't worry, I'm getting thicker skin and I'm not going to drink over it. And that's really all that matters if I took a drink over something like this. But really, I was down and out for a couple days. But somehow the drive and motivation to get behind the microphone came back fuller than ever. Now there were a lot of grammar mistakes in this email. There was a sentence that didn't even make sense. I hope you do realize you use your subscribers to get your podcast episodes. Should be, I hope you use your podcast episode listeners to get your subscribers. This person could have been drunk while writing this email. This person could have been sober. And again, I hope this person the best. We are not a program. We are not trying to recreate the steps or anything like that. What we are are a community of people. And as far as taking advantage of people to create a business, well, I searched for just this in 2014, but instead I found a sponsored Bud Light Lime ad at 1.57 in the morning. I had three minutes to get to the gas station before 2 a.m., and guess what I purchased? Yep, it was two 24-ounce cans of Bud Light Lime, a box of wine, and some yogurt-covered pretzels, because yogurt-covered pretzels are delicious. So call it taking advantage of people in vulnerable places. I desperately wish I had stumbled upon this when I was drinking. And it's going to take resources to combat this stigma, a stigma that has actually changed shape in what it looks like to me these days. Because you know who else preys on people in vulnerable positions? Yeah, that could be Miller Lite, Budweiser, Jose Cuervo, all of the above. They have resources and funds that are basically unlimited. So if you do have constructive feedback, please let me know. Send it to me at info at recoveryelevator.com. But if you are on Team Recovery already, do me a favor and get the hell out of my way and let me help some people. Let me grow this community. And my message to this person who sent me this email, number one, I hope you the best. That's actually really hard to say, and I'm not saying it on the podcast so I look like a good person or whatnot. I actually do. I wish you the best. But there's a value bomb to be taken away from this email. There's a huge red flag that comes from the second sentence. I am not getting anything out of this group. There's a huge problem right there. If you're in Cafe RE or you're listening to this podcast, don't ask yourself, what can I get out of Cafe RE or this podcast? Ask yourself, what can I give to Cafe RE or what can I give to the community, to this podcast? And I'm not talking about donate money. What can I give to my community? If that sounds like famous rhetoric from a World War II speech, then, well, that's probably where I got it from. But I'm serious. This group is not about you. Cafe RE, it's not about the people that are inside of it right now. It's not about me. This podcast is not about me one bit. It's about the person who's out there that's struggling. And if you're on team recovery already and you don't like the ways that we are trying to combat the stigma, then stop listening. Press stop right now. Who cares if we have a commercial in the middle of the Super Bowl that costs $133,000 a second, which Budweiser actually paid that same sum of money just a couple Super Bowls ago? Because we have nothing to be ashamed of. Why are we so anonymous about this? 
So if you are on team recovery and you have feedback, again, let me know. But again, remember, this is not about you. This is not about me. Ask yourself what you can give, not what you can take. I think that's the premise of what Christmas is based on. And hell, that's a kick-ass holiday. And some of you might find it shady that I use this podcast to drive traffic to the paid community of Cafe RE. And if so, that's fine. But let me tell you, I'm not a pioneer at all in this regard. It's me and about every other podcast out there doing the same thing. And here's one small suggestion to keep in mind while listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast. Take what you want and leave the rest. So on that note, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Now, I really want to keep these podcasts positive, uplifting, happy, and joyous. But I'll be honest and I want to be transparent. Those emails and criticism coming from Team Recovery, it's just hard to take. But that's okay. You got to have thick skin. And at the end of the day, it's more fuel for me to keep moving forward. So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.